0: But I was thinking about that this week, you know, as I was preparing for this message. I was thinking, two-pronged assaults have always worked throughout history, have they not? You always direct assault from the front, and then what do you do? You attack from the side or from behind, and you cut off the enemy, and you divide and conquer. It's a strategy that has worked well and served many commanders for many years now. And it's one that of late... Science and scholasticism has employed against the church. The direct frontal assault of denying the existence of God in the creation and the flank of causing believers to disbelieve the Word of God and lose their confidence in it. It has been a, an effective strategy that has worked well and it has caused the church no end of grief in the last century. I was thinking about this. I think this is why people like sports, because they're games of strategy, right? Football, it's strategy. It's getting that football up the field. Baseball is not really strategy. It's just luck. (laughs) Does anybody have any room for the 4th of July? (laughs) Having a barbecue later. I say that jokingly. Obviously, my wife is a huge baseball fan and she loves the strategy involved in it. And so we joke about that. Some of us more than others. (laughs) But this week we are continuing to look at two satanic strategies, this two-pronged assault of Satan against the church, against God's revelation which are designed to shipwreck our faith which we as believers need to reject we need to reject these two assaults so that we will may remain confident in God's revelation to us last week we saw that science has assaulted our common sense regarding the work of God in verses 1 to 6 we saw that in Psalm 19 And really what we said was that science has done everything in its power to cause us to disbelieve what ought to be common sense in general revelation. We look up and we see the sun come up every morning. We see the moon, we see the stars, and yet somehow we're told that that's not God's handiwork, that that is just random accident. And so continually we are assaulted with that on every level. Our high school students are learning that in science, from the youngest age, we're taught about the evolution of the universe and the, and the eternality of the material world, that all material is eternal. And yet the Bible would contradict that fact very blatantly, saying in Genesis 1 that God created it all from His words, and it's, the, it's His handiwork. It's the work of His hands. It's directly attributable to God. And yet we're told every day that that is, in fact, not the case. Turn in your Bibles, if you're not there already, to Psalm 19. Let's read through this. We'll just go ahead and read through the whole psalm again. It says, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them, he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. As we said last week, people look at the heavens and they misunderstand the purpose of the heavens, the heavens, the sun, the moon, the stars. They are there for the specific purpose of revealing the glory of God. That is why they are there. They describe God's glory one indicator of this recent shift from science to, from theology to science, I I was thinking about it this last week, is found in the phrase, when they're describing their kid, well, he's no, what? He's no rocket scientist, right? In the old days, they used to say, well, he's no theologian. Our culture values science far more than it values theology and the knowledge of God. And that indicator shows us that there is a frontal assault being directed against God's revelation in creation. This, of course, is followed by the flank. If we can't get people to disbelieve God in the creation, then let's follow up with a side attack and let's cause them to discount the word of God. And so... Our second point there is that scholasticism has assailed our confidence regarding the Word of God. And what I'd like you to do is look at verses 7 to 14 this morning. You know, ever since the age of reason began in 1648, also known as the Enlightenment, the Scriptures has been under a a direct assault continually from the world of scholasticism. At that point, they attempted to wed philosophy and theology together, and the result was a mutated form of Christianity and a, and a scripture that is full of holes like Swiss cheese. For 140 years, the Enlightenment and the German schools of liberalism has continually assailed our confidence in the scriptures. They have subjected the Bible to scholasticism, rationalism, higher criticism, and the isms go on and on and on. In the late 1800s, men such as Astruck, somebody you probably never even heard of, Immanuel Kant, Schleiermacher, Richel, and Wellhausen, all these men from the German schools of liberalism exported garbage. And they not only exported it, we sent our theologians over there to get trained under them. And all it has done, the backwash of that, has been to undermine the doctrines of inerrancy and inspiration and every other doctrine that we treasure. This guy, Jean Astruc, by the way, was a French physicist. And what he did was he came up with something known as the divine name criterion. How many of you have heard that? Not a one of you. But it influences us today. The divine name criterion is there are two names used of God in the Old Testament, right? Yahweh and Elohim, right? And what this guy said was, looking at the first five books of the Bible, we're going to take, with the presupposition of unbelief, and we're going to say that all the passages that use Yahweh as a divine name were written by one guy, and all the passages that use Elohim as a name, we're going to We're going to put those in a separate pile, and we're going to say they must be different authors. This is where we got the J-E-D-P theory. How many of you have heard of that? That's right. Now it's starting to ring a bell, isn't it? The J-E-D-P theory. J is German for Javé, or Yahweh. And they divided the Bible up and said the first five books of Moses were put together or compiled by multiple authors, not by Moses and that the different names indicate who the author was. Well, not only that, but we're going to also divide them up, and we're going to say there's also a priestly document in there, primarily Leviticus, and there's also a Deuteronomic author as well. So over time, this theory has mushroomed into what we call the JEDP theory. It is criticism, and what it's saying, the bottom line is that the first five books of the Bible were not written by Moses. And you cannot pick up an Old Testament commentary nowadays that does not ascribe to this theory. They won't, they won't even publish you if you don't ascribe to this theory. That is what scholasticism has done for us. In the 1920s, German liberalism was making its way into the denominations here in the U.S. And in particular, Karl Barth, during the days of neo orthodoxy in the early 1900s, wrote a commentary on Romans, which was the first commentary in 1919 that used redaction criticism. Multiple authors, multiple copies compiled together. Because of the voluminous writings of these liberals, the church has pretty much bought it hook line and sinker. And now we find ourselves three quarters of a century later and we are now being subjected to things in the Gospels. If you can do it to the Old Testament, you can do it to the New, right? So now we have Mark and Priority. We have Q source and we have all sorts of other heresies coming out of the Scripture. What What are those? Well, they tell us that because Mark is shorter, what must have happened was that the other writers used Mark as a source. Not only Mark, but they used some other mysterious document known as a Q source. And that God didn't inspire the writers of the Gospels. What happened was they used each other as sources and conflated the texts. They added to the texts. Folks, all scripture is what? inspired by God we either believe that or we don't and that's our hermeneutic of unbelief is what that is in fact if you look at the early church fathers every one of them will tell you and they were closer than we are but they will tell you that Matthew wrote first not Mark every single one of them so why do we believe this garbage underlying all of this as I said is a fundamental unbelief in the supernatural. If you don't believe in miracles, you don't believe in inspiration. The, book, the books of the Bible are not inspired revelation of God. People must have used sources. They must have compiled it. That's the thinking. So, the hermeneutics of unbelief, let me just say, they... They say the Bible is full of conflations or additions or cultural myths. I'm sure you've heard that. I'm sure you've heard it. I'm sure you've seen it on television. All you have to do is watch National Geographic or the History Channel. They say Moses used sources if he he even wrote the Pentateuch. It depends on where you fall on the scale of liberalism. As I said, the JEDP theory. They say Daniel prophesied after the events. They have a phrase. They call it prophecy ex eventu. He wrote it after the events happened. So it's prophecy backwards rather than forwards. What? You know how much work that takes to believe something like that? They say there's a difference between the Christ of Christianity and the Jesus of history. In other words, the real Jesus of history was one person. The cultural myths that were added to it and conflated into the Bible are all made up. As I said, they say Mark's Gospel was written first along with some other cue source that formed the substance of our Gospels that we have today. What do you think? Are these satanic strategies or what? Because every one of these causes us to lose confidence in the Scriptures. Every one of these chinks away just a little bit at our trust in the Word of God and its infallibility. These beliefs are abominable heresies that are generated in the veil of scholasticism. We want to be smart. We want to be smart like the rest of the world. We're not going to get doctors of theologies anymore. We're going to get PhDs, doctors of philosophy. The real issue, beloved, is that they don't want to answer or submit to the Word of God. That's what the bottom line is. They don't want to do what it says, so they will do everything they can to discredit it so they don't have to. Satan may be able to destroy, he may not be able to destroy the church or the Word of God, but he sure can discredit the Bible in our eyes and cause us to doubt its veracity. So what I want to do with you this morning is I want to give you three reasons from this text why believers need to have confidence in the Word of God. Three reasons. And the first one is because of its perfections. Look at verses 7 to 10. There are eight statements here. And in these eight statements... These verses describe, if you will, the perfections of the Word of God. There are, the first six are in a very discernible pattern. You can see that there, right? They're coupled together in pairs. So, law and testimony, precepts and commandment, fear and judgments. They're, they're coupled together. And what they are, are differing statements on the Word of God. Each one tells you not only an attribute of the word of God, it it tells you the subject, which is the word of God. It tells you an attribute of the word of God. It describes the word of God. Then it tells you the activity that the word of God does and the object that it does it to. Right? So look at the text with me. The law of the Lord is perfect. The law is perfect, right? We see it all the way down. The testimony. Sure, precepts right, commandment pure, fear clean, judgment's true. Each one of those statements describes a various attribute of the Word of God. Then it tells you what the Word of God does. What does it do? Well, it it restores the soul. The word restoring here, by the way, is the word that would normally be in the Old Testament, the word repent. It is the word shuv. It means to, to turn directions, to repent. But when it's used with soul, it it talks about reviving one's strength. So what it's talking about here is restoring or reviving the soul. That's what the Word of God does. Its testimony is sure. It makes wise the simple. And the simple here would be not unbelievers, as we've seen in other texts in the Proverbs. But what we're talking about here are those who are morally naive. Those who are morally naive, it it wakes them up. It grows them up. It makes them wise. The precepts are right, rejoicing the heart. That is the desires, the will, the affections. It rejoices them. It brings gladness to them. The commandments are pure, enlightening the eyes. We're talking about illumination here. If you were blind, it would cause you to see. Things in a different way. Fear is clean. Enduring forever. Literally to the age. So you see the pattern here. And the last phrase. The judgments are true. They are righteous altogether. Breaks the pattern. That last phrase breaks the pattern. And probably the reason why. Is because the author wanted to emphasize it. What he's saying is. It's quite possible that this last phrase, it switches to a different kind of a verb rather than a participle. It turns into an actual defined verb. And what it could say or you could translate it is that it makes righteous completely. The word of God, the Torah, is perfect. The revealed will of God in all of its fullness is perfect. And the bottom line is not only that it is perfect, it has the effect of making one perfect in the eyes of God. Sanctified. I'm not talking about, this is sanctification. This is not salvation. You're not saved if you read the Word of God. What we're talking about here is sanctification or growing in holiness, becoming more perfect, if you will, in the eyes of God. As one, how does that work? Well, as one is exposed to their sin and they confess it and repent of it, they grow in respect to sanctification and holiness that's how the word of god works think about 2nd timothy 3:15 to 17 pastor jim read that for us this morning but paul told timothy timothy you have known from childhood what the sacred scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation so where is that? Where is that in the Old Testament? Well, it's probably here. It's probably here. David further describes the word this way. By the way, let me back up and just say, down in verse 13, you see, he says, then I will be blameless. The law of the Lord is perfect, and the word blameless is actually the same word. It's In Hebrew, it's perfect. So the law of the Lord not only is perfect, it makes perfect. So David further describes the word this way. He says that the words of God are more desirable than gold, even much pure gold. Pure gold, fine gold has been translated here. They're sweeter than honey. And in Hebrew, this is even virgin stores of honey from the comb. The virgin storehouse is like like Winnie the Pooh getting into the virgin storehouse of the the honeycombs. That's what we're talking about. You know, when we were up in Hearst Castle recently, we decided to take a little getaway for our anniversary, 18 years. We decided to celebrate a little, and we went up to Hearst Castle up there in, where is it? San Simeon, that's right. I was overwhelmed at the vast Riches that this guy had obtained, right? How many of you have been there? Fascinating. Fascinating. Gold tiles in the pools. Statues all over the place. Priceless paintings. It's just, it's just overwhelming. He's got 3,500 B.C. year old statues from Egypt right there in his main entrance. Incredible. Incredible wealth. And David says, The word of God. All that stuff pales in comparison to the Word of God. The Word of God is more desirable. I want it more than all of that stuff. I could care less about the treasures of the world. Give me more, more, more of this. That's what David is saying. So in other words, what else could you possibly want in life? It's precious. It's sweet. They're the words of God. This very psalm, however, scholars have tried to dismantle, as I said, in the last hundred years. Look at the title of this psalm. By the way, the title is part of verse 1. It says, for the choir director, a psalm of who? David. Okay, the first six verses of this psalm use God's name Elohim. The last verses... Starting at verse 7, the law of Yahweh, they start using Yahweh, must be different authors, right? Must be. That's what they do, though. This is exactly the problem. I think what I would like to say is that in the same way, what's the connection between these two halves of the psalm? I guess that's what we're asking. What is the connection? How are they Why were they put together they 're not put together. David wrote them together because what he was saying was that in the same way general revelation illuminates our eyes to god 's attributes, special revelation illuminates our eyes to salvation. The two work hand in hand they 're both revealing god 's glory so they're not put together. It's a false assumption right from the get-go. It says it's a psalm of David. So what does that mean? It means it's a psalm of David. That's exactly what it means. But, but here's the problem. Here's what we do. We separate the psalm based on the divine names. We dismantle it as probably different authors. Next step, we declare it as errant text. And then... Communicate it that way in our commentaries. Next thing you know, what are you left with? Scriptural Swiss cheese. You don't believe it anymore. And this, as I said, is where we get pushed back on our heels. These men know Hebrew. I don't know Hebrew, right? Well, I'll just believe the commentaries. I'll believe whatever I read. My open Bible. I used it for years, by the way. Do You know, how many of you, anybody have an open Bible? Ah, a few of you do. On that page that describes the four Gospels there, it says Mark probably wrote first and then the other writers used him as a source. You wouldn't pick up on that if I hadn't told you. But it has so crept in we don't even realize it. It has crept in unnoticed. But look at this last phrase in describing the perfections here. What does it say? The judgments of the Lord, what? They are what? They're true. They are true. The judgments are true. This is a synonym for the word of God here. Judgments is a synonym for the word of God. And what it's saying is it doesn't simply contain truth. It is truth. The word of God is truth itself. It is perfect and it makes one perfect. If one will drink deeply from it, if one will meditate on it, he will be like a tree firmly planted by canals of water, right? Isn't that what Psalm 1 tells us? But there's a vicious cycle in play here and I I need to describe this to you because this is what happens. Many of us get caught in these type of sin cycles. And here's the pattern on the part of the scholars. It says, essentially, the more the church's confidence is undermined, the more they disbelieve the word, the less they read it, the less they apply it, they don't meditate on it, they're subsequently little affected by it, thus they stop reading it, therefore they don't change, so in the end, they disbelieve it even more. That's the cycle and that cycle has been spiraling downward for the last hundred years. This is the state of evangelicalism today, in case you haven't noticed it. To be sure, there are some who ascribe to the doctrine of inerrancy. There may even be some who pay lip service to it. They might even have it in their doctrinal statements. But in the end, Do they believe it? No, they don't or they wouldn't buy this stuff. Do they defend it? No. We could say the same thing. Do you live in such a way that you believe that the scriptures are the inerrant, infallible, perfect word of God? Do you live that way? Do you believe it? Are you sold out to this book? Would you give your life for it? Beloved, we need to have confidence in the Word of God because it is perfect. It is perfect and because it sanctifies us if we will but give ourselves to it. It does. Look at the list. It's perfect. It's sure. It's right. It's pure. It's clean. It's true. It restores the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. It endures to the age. And it makes righteous completely. believe that? Do you believe that? Then we need to reject the ungodly scrutiny of scholasticism. You know, by the way, let me just say this, closing this first point out here. Do you know Jesus believed in the doctrine of inspiration? Do you know that? Look at Matthew twenty-two forty-nine, or 43. Correction. Matthew 22 and verse 43. You can back up, start in verse 41. It says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. This, of course, following his rejection by them. They asked him a bunch of questions to try to trap him. He turned around and asked them a question. And so what does he say? What do you think about the Christ or the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, Well, the son of David. And he said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. This is probably one of the most quoted, if not the most quoted Old Testament passage. It comes right out of Psalm 110. And Jesus says, how, do, how then does David say in the spirit or under inspiration? And then he quotes the phrase. Jesus believed David wrote it. Jesus believed in inspiration. Why would we abandon it? Why would we abandon it? The second reason we need to have confidence in the Word of God is because of its promise. Look at verse 11. David says, Moreover, by them thy servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. A little grammar here, in Hebrew, the adjective great always carries the idea of quantity, not quality. In Aramaic, it's qualitative. So what does that mean? It means much. It means much. There's a lot. There's a lot of rewards in keeping the Word of God. There is a promise of abundant or much reward if one will walk in obedience to the Word of God. The Word of God is a treasure. It's a treasure beyond your wildest imaginations, if you will but heed its warnings. A lot of people play the lottery, don't you? (laughs) I don't know about you guys, but a lot of people play the lottery, hoping to win big. And here we have vast treasures of storehouses, storehouses of treasures, Right at our fingertips. Right here. It's treasure. What more could you want in life? And the rewards follow in the text to be sure. Restoring the soul. Making wise the simple. Rejoicing the heart. Those are the rewards. Enlightening the eyes. But the Word of God is full of so many treasures. Right? Right? In them we find the knowledge of God. Where else are you going to find that? Freedom from the enslavement to sin. Restored relationship with God and life everlasting. Sanctification. Hope. Hope from the despair of life. A continual source of renewal. What more could you want? I'm not talking about big bank accounts here. I'm not talking about perfect health. If you read the Word of God, I can't guarantee either one of those claims. Although many are making such claims today, aren't they? I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is knowing God. And if you know God... You know that He is the treasure. He is the treasure. And through the Scriptures, we find Him. We draw near to Him. It's all about Him and us being close to Him and knowing Him and living for Him and finding life in Him. That's what we get out of the Word of God. Treasures of this world hold little value now. I mean, you've had yard sales before, Right? You collect stuff your whole life and you sell it for pennies on the dollar because it's worthless. It's worthless. It's your junk and nobody else wants it. God is the treasure. These things hold little value now and even less beyond the grave, they're worthless. Let me just ask you a question. How many mature believers do you know who don't read or obey the Scriptures? How many? Do you think you will ever achieve maturity apart from the Word of God? The answer is no. It's no, you will not. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to transform us. And so if you don't believe in it, if you don't trust in it, if you don't give yourself to it, you will be a spiritual pygmy. The Word of God is perfect. It contains promises. Third reason we need to have confidence in the Word of God is verses 12 to 14, because of its power. Because of its power. David says the Word of God is powerful to, ex- to effect change in the believer. So what I wanted to do is look at the text with you and explain to you six ways, six progressive ways in which the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to change you, to change you. Many people want to know, well, how does it work? How does it work? How does the Word of God work? Well, I'm going to tell you this morning how the Word of God works on your soul. How does it convert the soul? How does it make you perfect? Well, here's how. First, it discerns errors. Verse 12. It discerns errors. And errors here is the idea of sin. Literally, it says errors. Who can discern them? Well, you can't for sure. But the Word of God can. The Word of God is propositional, objective truth. And when you read it, you know you've messed up. So this rhetorical question here makes the point that perfect moral discernment is impossible to achieve because we're blinded by our own sin. We need something on on the outside of us to bring conviction, and that's what the Word of God does. It is inevitable that you will sin in some way. I guarantee you. You just sinned. But errors are sins of both ignorance and infirmity. Those which are done both unintentionally and unconsciously. They're errors. They're slip-ups. They're goof-ups. You don't even know they're goof-ups until somebody tells you it's a goof-up. John Calvin said it this way. He said, we are entangled in so many nets and snares of Satan that none of us can perceive the hundredth part of the evils that cleave to him. You don't even realize how sinful you are until you read the Word of God. That's the point. You don't even know. You wouldn't know unless you read the Word of God. The Word of God lays a person bare. It judges them. It shows them what is inside. It convinces them of how much there is that needs to be purged, how far even one who loves it is from perfect obedience. You read it and you go, I just want to kill myself. I want to kill myself. I fall so woefully short of God's standards. Hebrews 4, right, tells us that the word of God is sharper than what? Two edged sword, and it hacks us to pieces like, like Agag in the Old Testament, right? It hacks us to pieces. It is at once a copy of the will of God and a mirror of the heart of man. It calls forth the penitent to confession, first for pardon and then for sanctification. So it discerns errors. Secondly, it exposes secrets. Verse 12, he says, Acquit me of hidden faults. Hidden faults. Acquit me is the idea here of pronounce me or declare me innocent. Declare me innocent. Of sins in particular. But hidden faults are not, and I need you to understand this, these are not sins committed in secret. What they are are sins that are not recognized as sins by the psalmist. They have not been exposed yet or uncovered. So one writer said they they are sins hidden not only from others, but from our own hearts. Through inobservance, through a too ready forgetfulness of them when observed, through the habit of self-deception, or even through their being willfully cherished. That's what they are. Secret sins. The word of God searches like a spotlight. And it looks down in the recesses of the soul and it finds the sin that you haven't even figured out yet. And it exposes them. We, we have so many blind spots, we would not even know them if the Word of God didn't reveal them to us. You remember Josiah in the Old Testament. Pastor Wine preached through that, that marvelous passage where Josiah's people uncover the book of the law, Right? They've been cleaning out the temple, having a yard sale. And there they uncover the Word of God. And and they read it and they go, we've been sinning against God all this time and we didn't even know it. That's how the Word of God operates. It exposes secrets. Third, it restrains presumptions. In verse 13, he says, also keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. So there's a, a gradation, if you will, of sinning. You see them? their are errors, their are hidden faults, and their are presumptuous sins. So it starts with involuntary. Involuntary, it moves to hidden or unexposed, then on to presumptuous, and then if you look just one part of the verse down there, he says, let them not rule over me. These are life-dominating sin patterns then. Presumptuous sins turn into life-dominating sin patterns. What do I mean by that? What are some of these? Well, let's say idolatry. And the New Testament would define idolatry as immorality, impurity, sensuality, and greed. Paul says these things are idolatry. Right? Colossians 3. Lust. Anger. Anxiety. These are life-dominating sin patterns. You know the right to do, and you just continue not to do it. You presume upon the good graces of God and continue in sin. You turn a blind eye to them. You know they're wrong, and yet you keep doing them. And what happens is the more you do those, you continue to become enslaved to it. And so David here is asking that God would hold him back. Hold him back. Put a straitjacket on them. That's what the Word of God does. It puts a straitjacket on us. It, it, It restrains us from that kind of sin. It restrains our fleshly lusts. So it discerns errors. It exposes secrets. It restrains presumptions. It breaks bonds. Verse 13, let them not rule over me. And as I said, let not the presumptuous sins rule over me. Grammatically, these are flagrant fouls. Flagrant fouls. You know the right to do. You just choose to continue to sin and rebellion. And you do it until it controls you and it holds you in its grip. The Word of God is the only thing that can break those bonds. The Word of God exposes sin. It objectively condemns the sin. It causes us to see the sin the way God sees it, that we might forsake it and abandon it and grow in respect to sanctification. That's how the Word of God works. And unfortunately, many of us have little given ourselves to the Word of God. So in effect, it does not break those bonds of sin. Some of you this morning are still in bondage to sin struggles you've had your whole life. Why is that? Why is that? Are you freed or are you not? I think we're freed from the enslavement of sin if we will give ourselves to the Word of God and renew our mind. See, it's not enough just to simply try to stop doing the sin. We need to stop doing the sin. We need to renew our mind with the Word of God. And we need to put on the godly, righteous behavior. That we find in the scriptures that's how we are going to overcome it see many simply want the consequences of sin to go away but they're unwilling to forsake the sin itself because they see it as something God hates if you saw it as something God hates you would abandon it fifth it sanctifies souls verse 13 he says then i shall be blameless or perfect and shall be acquitted of great transgression same word here much transgression the idea of then and this is a result this is a result what that means is as you're exposed to sin as sin is exposed and you repent of it then you become more blameless in the eyes of god now Obviously, this is Old Testament versus New Testament. I don't want to confuse you, so let me say this. Sanctification, as we've talked about in the past, New Testament model is that you are perfect in Christ, right? We are perfect in Christ. We stand holy and blameless before God on the basis of Christ's work on our behalf and our faith in Him. Old Testament, it's still by faith it's still by faith in the word of god it's obedience by faith it's trusting in the word of god it's trusting in god to acquit and make righteous it's it's really not any different it's just a different dispensation but it sanctifies it exposes sin it acquits of much sin it declares the believer not guilty not guilty because all sin is a direct affront against who All sin is primarily directed against God. So he is the one that the sin needs to be confessed to. He is the one that exposes it in his word. Remember Psalm 51. David knew his crimes. He knew his crimes and he knew he was guilty of capital offenses against God, against society. And he knew the only place to go for forgiveness or mercy was to God. And that's what he did in Psalm 51. He pleaded with God for mercy. He threw himself on the mercy of the court. So how does the word of God sanctify us on this side of the cross? Let me, let me read this paragraph for you here real quick. Holiness of life is not simply attained by moral effort nor even by striving to keep the law of God. It is not even a matter of letting go and letting God. Practical holiness involves putting to death in our lives what God has already sentenced to death on the cross and living out the new life given to us by the indwelling Christ. Human effort is required, but not apart from nor distinct from the activity of God's Spirit who subdues the flesh, as we mortify it in His power, and as we set our minds upon the things of the Spirit. It demands our continuing yes to God's liberating and vivifying activity in the past, present, and future. So what does that mean? It it means that, yes, it's the Spirit of God that sanctifies you, but it requires your effort in the power of the Spirit to subdue the flesh and to believe in God's Word. I'm quickly running out of time, so I'm going to skip ahead a little here. Let me just say there's really not much difference between somebody who attacks the Word of God and somebody who neglects the Word of God. So what will you do with the light that you've been given? That's the question. Will you read the Word of God and allow it to affect you, or will you simply ignore it and continue to live a life of error, secret sin, flagrant sin, and life-dominating sin? See, God has disclosed himself to us. We know about God through his word. The more we know him, the more we desire to be like him, the more we want to be near him. And that's what sanctifies us. That's what changes us. We want to be like God. Finally, it renews your mind. Just look at the last verse there. He says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This idea of be acceptable is become pleasurable. Let the word of God become pleasurable. Let me become pleasurable before you, my God. So as one meditates upon the word of God, their words and their thoughts are renewed and they become more and more pleasurable in the eyes of God. The ultimate accomplishment of the Word of God is is restored fellowship with Him. So, think about this psalm. It, It is interesting how God has gone from creator of everything, right, down to this most intimate term of a redeemer and a rock. God has gone from the creator of all in a very transcendent sort of way to a very imminent God so those who believe by faith have their minds and hearts renewed by the word of God so these two names here for God rock and redeemer they're both applied to Christ in the New Testament did you know that in him Paul says we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. He is our Redeemer. He is our Rock. He is our Rock. They even identify Him as the Rock that was following them through the wilderness in the Old Testament. And I tell you this because it is ironic in some way that God has revealed Himself in creation in general revelation. He has revealed Himself in His Word, in His inerrant and infallible Word. And He has also revealed Himself fully and finally in who? Jesus Christ. So that word, that special revelation, tells us about His Son, Jesus Christ. And all three work together to declare the glory of God. General revelation, special revelation, and the Son. They all declare the glory of God. So to reject any one of these three is to actually reject them all to reject any one of the three is to reject them all what will you do with the light that has been given to you let's pray Our Father, we are so thankful that You have chosen to reveal Yourself to us. Father, not only in the creation, but in a special way, our Father, You have chosen to reveal Yourself through Your Word and ultimately through Your Son. Father, You have granted us the grace to believe in the Word of God. You have granted us Your Spirit that we might repent and believe. You have granted us, our Father, Your mercy and salvation And, Father, we, of all people this morning, are most grateful. As we come to celebrate communion now, our Father, we pray that you would draw our hearts even closer to you. Father, through your word, help us to understand you better, that we might walk in obedience and that we might long for the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray this morning. Amen.